I know you're all discerning podcast listeners interested in society's many challenges. So I'd like to point you to another show that may fit the bill. From KCRW, an NPR station out of Los Angeles, it's City of Tents, Veterans Row. If you live in LA, you may have seen Veterans Row in Brentwood, one of LA's fanciest neighborhoods. It was a giant tent city decked out in American flags where homeless military veterans built a camp and refused to leave. In eight episodes, KCRW's Anna Scott tells the story of Veterans Row from the inside. Meet the men who built the camp as a protest, hear how it finally came to a dramatic end, and learn how helping people experiencing homelessness could go so much better if we really wanted it to. Listen to City of Tents, Veterans Row from KCRW, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. The important work of political and civic engagement doesn't just happen every two years. Vote Save America's No Off Your program is here to help you stay engaged throughout 2023's critical elections, starting with a must-win Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin. Visit votesaveamerica.com right now to donate to help get out the vote in Wisconsin ahead of the April election there. And sign up to join our No Off Years campaign to stay in the loop on what's happening and how you can get involved via remote and in-person volunteer opportunities, targeted donations, and more. That's votesaveamerica.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Positively Dreadful with me, your host, Brian Boitler. There's a tick in mainstream political reporting. I think Margaret Sullivan and I may have alluded to it in an episode a couple weeks back, uh, where reporters and editors and producers and so on assess the the newsworthiness of an issue more or less in proportion to how fired up either of the two political parties are about it. So why they do this is slightly complicated. But if you reason backward from the idea that journalists are supposed to pretend like they have no opinions— which is an idea that's very commonly held in American newsrooms, you can kind of understand why this sort of test might seem like a good heuristic. We don't presume to judge what matters or what's right, but these guys seem pretty fired up about this or that, and so we are duty-bound to cover it, to take their expressed concerns seriously. That sounds harmless enough, except it's a system that's easily gamed by whichever party happens to be less scrupulous or more willing to to behave angry, to act angry about something that isn't actually controversial or very important. Uh, You probably gather where I'm going with this, but, but in our political culture today, that party is the Republican Party. And if you pay close attention to politics, but you don't play by that sort of shitstorm test or that shitstorm rule, you have these Groundhog Day-like moments where, say, a Republican president will give way to a Democratic president, and then the Republican Party suddenly appears all fired up about deficits and government spending and debt. Or an election draws near, and wouldn't you know it, Republicans are suddenly livid about a migrant caravan moving north through Mexico. Uh, The GOP made Benghazi a central theme of the 2016 Republican National Convention, then stopped pretending to care after Donald Trump won the election. Same thing happened with emails. We heard so much endless, sincere-sounding outrage about the sanctity of government records and the importance of adhering to the rules, 
only for Trump to come in and preside over the most corrupt administration in my lifetime, uh, including serial widespread violations of records-keeping rules. And wouldn't you know, it turns out it was no big deal. Okay, so when stuff like this happens, I have a, a mantra that I return to, and I aim it at our press corps, and it goes like this. It goes, you don't have to pretend to believe Republicans when they pretend to be mad about something. And I think that's a pretty good lodestar for journalism today, except it means that journalists have to be pretty sure they know what outrage is actually insincere. And that can be tricky. Um, Sometimes history is here to help, especially recent history. I like to think that the press has become slightly less credulous over the years about where the parties really stand on issues surrounding the federal budget. Uh, But sometimes outrage is genuine, and it swells from the bottom up, and it's perfectly natural for elected officials to echo that outrage. All of that brings us to the topic of this week's episode, which is, I guess, it's like the sociology of right-wing culture wars. How do the flashpoints of those culture wars arise? To what extent are they organic? To what extent are they orchestrated? Uh, And as a mode of politics for an entire party and political movement, are they effective? I mean, they're obviously effective at galvanizing segments of the public and at intimidating political opponents and media figures and so on. But is the modern GOP's near exclusive fixation on tribal politics, identity politics, culture war politics, is this optimal for their electoral fortunes? If the ultimate goal is for conservative politicians to win elections, are they picking a good strategy? If not, why are they doing it? Uh, And if it is something like the best they can do, are we just stuck with right-wing culture war politics forever? Um, And can Democrats fight back with culture war battles of their own? So the big one right now on the right stems from something that's very real. Um, There's usually at least a kernel of something real at the bottom of these episodes. Uh, This one's about the train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Um, It would be a sign of, of healthier political culture if this accident had sparked bipartisan calls for investigations, tighter safety regulations, environmental cleanup, restitutions for families paid for by Norfolk Southern. Uh, But that's not really happening. And it's not happening in part because the leadership of the Republican Party and the key media figures of the far right have pounced to declare the derailment a consequence of Democrats abandoning the heartland. Or worse, they'll just come out right and say it's part of a liberal war on white people. Before East Palestine, the culture war flavor of the week was gas stoves. You may remember this. Gas stoves pollute the air in houses. They might actually be hazardous to people's health, particularly to children's health. And so the federal consumer safety regulators said that danger should be addressed, needed to be addressed. It got reported inaccurately as the federal government plans to ban gas stoves. And then Republicans were off to the races. They're coming for your gas stoves. Except, one, it just wasn't true. And two, gas stoves aren't even a heartland thing. Guns, sure. But gas stoves are for foodies, coastal elites, Democrats. And so all the questions I just alluded to apply. Is the outrage genuine? Do they believe any of that? I think the answer is no. Uh, When it comes to chemical spills, they don't believe in business regulation. They don't believe in federal environmental protection. They don't believe corporations should be accountable for their pollution. Uh, So they don't really believe a toxic train crash is some deep betrayal of real America. 
And when it comes to gas stoves or fluorescent lighting or low-flush toilets or any of the other things they've recently tried to gin up outrage over, these are just things they saw on the news. They never thought about them or cared about them before, but they decided to scream to the high heavens about them to see if they could get a good backlash going. So has that affected politics? I honestly don't know the answer. We had some special elections this past week, and Democrats did really well in them. Democrats have done really well in the past three general elections. So it's not like Republicans have cracked the code with this culture war politics or anything, but they're definitely committed to the bit. And so why is that? I think part of it is that their governing agenda, such as it is, turns a lot of people off. It's tax cuts for the rich, big cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, abortion bans, and so on. So getting the public and the media worked up about gas stoves or caravans or whatever else takes the heat off of policy in general. Um, But I think there's more to the story. So in 2009, in the depths of the Great Recession, after Barack Obama became president, there was a huge immediate right-wing backlash, and it took shape in the Tea Party. And the Tea Party's leaders and Republicans in Congress all swore up and down that this was an organic uprising of Americans who were livid about deficits and spending. And so they wanted to stop the Recovery Act and the Affordable Care Act. Uh, And many, many reporters dutifully covered it that way. Uh, But a Harvard sociologist named Theda Scotchpole did the real hard work of trying to understand what animated the actual people who joined the Tea Party movement. Was it spending government money on health insurance or was it something else? And after conducting years of interviews and doing deep empirical research, she published a book called The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism. And she concluded, no, that this is a recurrent phenomenon on the right, spurred in this instance by contempt for Obama and the many things he supported and represented. So multiculturalism, the thriving of non-white immigrants, welfare for ethnic minorities, Uh, And that resurgence worked like a charm. Republicans won by enormous margins in 2010, which allowed them to reshape national politics for more than a decade. Uh, And I think it stands to reason that they kind of want to recreate that magic to sort of channel people's lizard-brained grievances and hatreds into some respectable-sounding vehicle or other. Gas stoves, for instance. Uh, And if you do that, you might whip up a political insurgency that sweeps Republicans back into power. So is that what's really going on here? Is it deeper than just pure cynicism? Well, fortunately, Theta Scotchpole agreed to join us this week to help me kick the tires on this theory and to help us better understand just generally why we're always drowning in these right-wing culture war fights. So Theta, uh, it's so great to have you on the show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Uh, So first things first, do you object to how I characterized anything in that lengthy (laughs) windup? No, I don't think so. I mean, we we need to remember that I did the Tea Party research with Vanessa Williamson, and uh, we together uh, pulled together all kinds of information, including from interviews and visits to actual Tea Parties on the ground. So, yeah, um, no, no intention to give short shrift to your to your colleague. in, in your work, did you have you concluded or do, do you sense that there's sort of a natural rhythm to these right wing resurgences like the Tea Party and then and then MAGA? Do they swell up on their own or does it require a top down stoking of resentments? 
You know, movements never just swell up from below. I mean, I think that's something we can say about movements left, right, and otherwise throughout history, including American history. They usually have both bottom-up and top-down elements, and the ones that catch on and build over time and, and gain some kind of political clout have some grounding in real uh, social anxieties or social cleavages. Um, and, you know, I would step back. We've seen the Tea Party rebellions against Barack Obama, which definitely had both bottom-up and top-down elements to them. We've seen them transmogrify into Trumpism over the course of a decade. And now Trumpism is taking on an even harder edge and living on beyond Trump, in my view. I think Trump is... Is, is on his way um, um, to the backstage. Um, but there are plenty of politicians who want to ride the same waves and stoke the same waves, and it takes both. Now, I would point to something that we stressed at the time of the Tea Party research, which having a dedicated propaganda-oriented right-wing media complex really does help to keep certain kinds of angers and fears front and center. But we are in an era in the United States that I would characterize big picture as the unfolding and now intertwining of three major societal transformations. First, there was the civil rights revolution and the renewal of black voting rights and uh, the reassertion of black rights to be full participants in society. Well, that starts in the 1960s and 70s and culminates in what, what for many older conservatives was a very scary way in the election of Barack Obama. Uh, it's just jarring for them to think about and see that. Um, and they had then plenty of help from the right-wing media and right-wing elites in stoking those fears about what that would mean. But that's not the only thing that's happened. We've seen big changes in family life and in gender roles and relationships. And in some ways, that's the second big wave of change that unfolded uh, with the rise with the emergence of the organized Christian right and its ability to take over in a very sustained way, a major part of the Republican Party, starting from localities and states and moving up. And that is probably the most sustained um, a set of uh, social angers and fears. Um, and of course, if you pick an issue like transgender uh, health care for children or uh, anything about gays uh, and lesbians, you can um, arouse those kinds of angers and fears. And, and you might be trying to do that if you're a right-wing elite at the same time that the abortion thing seems to be backfiring um, because it wasn't just aspiring to ban abortions. It's actually happening and there's a backlash to that from the center left. But I want to point to the third thing that's unfolded in this era. And if you go back across American history, every time there's a period of arrival of new waves of immigrants in the United States, and they're different defined against whatever was there before. First, it was Germans and Irish. Then it was Eastern Europeans, including Eastern European Jews and Catholics in big waves and and to some degree blacks migrating from the south into the north and and since 1965 until about 2008 we had waves of new arrivals from central and latin america 
Africa and, and Asia. And even though those arrivals are not um, net as great now, um, it's not surprising that we're in a period of nativist reaction to that. And a lot of the Tea Party was about that nativism. That's one of the things we argued that um, people were as upset by Barack Obama's middle name and the fact that a lot of immigrants were supporting him and they thought that he wanted to legalize immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants in order to vote for Democrats as they were about this color of his skin. So these things are now intertwined into one big, um, I don't know, apocalyptic ball in the minds of a lot of older people who are who see a country that's changing, that they don't recognize uh, as what they grew up with, and that they're afraid of. Now, those fears are artificially stoked all the time. I do not say that the Republican Party is and its politicians are operating just because they're afraid of this. I don't buy the idea that Tucker Carlson is just afraid of his viewers. They know what they're doing. Now, I know that the left and all the little gatekeepers on Twitter become literally hysterical if you use the term replacement, if you suggest that the Democratic Party is trying to replace the current electorate, the voters now casting ballots with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. But they become hysterical because that's that's what's happening, actually. Let's just say it. That's mm. true. They know they're stoking, arousing, building those fears in order to use them for profit, for corrupt profits. There's a lot of corruption and for uh, political power that they will then use to enact um, tax cuts for the very rich, of whom there are more and more these days on all parts of the spectrum, and regulatory uh, uh, cuts on business. Uh, Trump kind of fused all that, but he's not the only one who aspires to do it and to fuse it. Um, and, you know, the, the current form that racial fears take these days is, is a lot of fear about um violence and um, whether the police can crack down on it in ways that that was taken for granted in the pre-camera era. Uh, there's nothing new about police beating up on people of color and for that matter, lower income white people in rural areas and killing them in many cases. Uh, it's just that we see it now. And so that created another round of the kind of black, white, transformations uh, because blacks are no longer willing to accept this and neither are their white allies. So, you know, I just have to say that those things are all really happening. They've really come together in the early 21st century. And so they provide a fertile ground, especially when you take into account that Republicans um, ended up being captured by a lot of that with the rise of Trump. Um, the party's hollowed out in many ways um, and now captured by Trumpists. And they have a lot of extra levers at their disposal because the way the federal single member district system operates and the Senate operates, they have, a third of the population can give them a chance to win national power and hold it. And if you add the federal courts into that, which they have now captured, a radical elite faction has captured the federal courts if you count the Supreme Court, where things finally will go to die, if they're otherwise. Um, it takes a long time, though. Um, that 
that is um, a formula for minority authoritarianism. And there are lots and lots of scared older Americans, especially white Americans, but not only, who are willing to go along with the politicians who propose it. Yeah. So it sounds to me like, you know, what you're saying is there's a perfect storm of real social currents that are um, sort of priming a large segment of the population to be radicalized or to be uh, become fearful or to or to respond to efforts to to stoke their anger or their fear. Um, and I'm I'm interested, at least at this juncture, in the how much influence um, the people who make the messages, the, the the elites themselves, have to to um, turn that into a viable uh, reactionary political movement, or alternatively, to say this is going to unleash dark forces. There are better ways to form a, a winning political coalition, and so we're not going to tempt fate by by playing to to that faction. You were you were describing, I think, a sort of perfect storm of social currents and trends that are that are priming a large segment of the population um, to be um, fearful or, or radicalized uh, and to be susceptible to efforts to sort of exploit their their fears and angers. And I, I'm interested in how much influence um, elites have over the question of how all of that resolves, right? Because, um, you know, obviously what Republicans are doing is trying to exploit it and turn it into a, a durable political movement that that helps them win elections. Um, but in theory, it it's a choice and they could choose to say, you know, uh, the, the um, majority of Americans will reject this kind of politics or this kind of politics is, is dangerous and we shouldn't play with fire um, by, by, by feeding these fears. Um, and, you know, I think you saw a version of that latter kind of instinct from Democrats after Trump won in 2016, there was this liberal backlash, um, the, the capital R resistance, huge protests everywhere. And I think Democratic Party leaders got kind of spooked by it um, and tried to sort of triangulate away from it. And th- their decision not to simply just become the political arm of the resistance, I th- I think you could see it, it sort of deflated the movement. You can You could sort of feel the power that was in the streets right after the election dissipate over the course of his time in office. Um, and, you know, I wonder what would have happened back in 2009 or eight or whenever you want to start the clock on the Tea Party movement um, if the, the, the post-John McCain leaders had said, no, no, like Obama was not born in Kenya. We reject that. We reject, um, you know, at- attacking our political opponents on the basis that they're part of some sort of conspiracy to usurp the United States. We just disagree with him about healthcare policy. Like what would, what effect would that have had on the movement? Is it, is like, is the movement too big to, to, to be sort of tamped down on in that way? Would it have thrived anyway? Um, or would it, would that have sort of put, put an end to, to the tea party, which then became MAGA and brought us to where we are today? 
Uh, well, we should bookmark what you had to say about uh, what Democrats and the resistance did, because I have a very different take on that. Okay. They did research on the resistance. But let me address the other question. There's a huge collective action problem in general uh, for American elites. Um, you know, American elites are um, competitive in almost every sphere. And by the time you got to the rise of Donald Trump, which did come as a surprise to um, established uh, Republican politicians at the time, um, if we're talking 2014-15, um, the Republican Party is an organization and a set of organizations able to control nominations and um, set an agenda was pretty hollowed out. Um, my sense of it is that um, even before the Tea Party arose, with its top-down and bottom-up elements, but with bottom-up elements very powerful, um, you had uh, the Koch network taking over or uh, paralleling the Republican Party and using a combination of carrots and sticks to force an ultra-free market agenda that's even so extreme that the Chamber of Commerce doesn't always go along with it, at least in key states where they want to spend money on things like roads, you know, I mean, old-fashioned stuff like that, or... (laughs) Uh, adopting um, the Obamacare Medicaid expansion, which involves billions of dollars for hospitals and, and insurance companies. So I, I do think that the Republicans were already buffeted and in many ways captive to elite forces that were pushing things that were completely different from what grassroots Tea Parties or later grassroots Trumpists really want which is something done about immigration, something done about uppity blacks and out-of-place women. Um, And um, Trump is brilliant at getting at those kinds. And for that matter, something done about the fact that their way of life is lost with the the abandonment of manufacturing in the country. I mean, that too was a strand. I don't think it was the dominant strand, but I think it was there and it's intertwined with all the rest. And Trump, of course, was a brilliant politician at playing the media, not just the right-wing media, but the mainstream media. He played them for all they were worth. And the mainstream media is part of the problem in this country, in my view. Um, but he he played everybody. He, he isolated and humiliated and winnowed from the herd one... Um, Republican who might have said, well, we only want to go so far with this stuff. (laughs) He showed you could go all the way with this stuff and win the presidency. Well, once that happens, um, then the inability to create any kind of collective we to enforce anything, which is inherent in America's political parties, they're not really strong unitary actors, uh, really kicked in. And you I think we've ever since then had two strands around in and around the Republican Party. One is the people who want to install minority uh, rule over a long period of time in the face of rising majorities of Americans who don't like anything they stand for, for that matter, economic or cultural, by uh, manipulating the rules of the game. That's the ones who want to take over the courts, change the voting access rules, etc. I call that McConnellism. That's McConnellism. And then there's Trumpism, which says, well, why wait for all that? And, 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 and if that fails, let's just use violence and threats of violence to change the way votes are counted and elections are settled. And uh, that's the, the split that became glaringly apparent after Trump lost in 2020. 
Uh, it was already kind of visible because I think the grassroots resistance across the country made a lot of gains in the 19 in the 2018 elections and elect, elected a lot of new Democrats, many of whom were not far left at all. Um, they were, you know, elected by women, older women, mainly going door to door, knocking on doors and and pushing a, a broad liberal agenda uh, in opposition to Trump. So. I mean, I think the Democratic Party is much less hollowed out, although it suffers greatly from the weakness of its trade union uh, base and allies in reaching into the blue collar ranks. But it um, it has not catered to extremes on either side toward moderation or toward leftism um, nearly to the same degree as Republicans. But Republicans can't just take themselves into a room and decide to do something. They're all maneuvering vis-a-vis one another. They don't believe in public service in the first place. They believe in using politics to make money. And now we've got a whole group that believes in politics as a way to to get on Fox News and and on the right-wing media. So I hear what you're saying about the collective action problem. Um, I I get that, that the leadership of the party is weak and can't really control what's happening in the broad right wing. Um... And so if they tried to steer clear of things like saying that the the derailment in East Palestine was about a war on white people, some other opportunistic figure would would latch onto it and just go there anyway. Um, By the way, I don't think that's going to fly. Well, I don't think it's going to appeal broadly. <laughs> No, um, some of these things fly and some don't. But that right, one. right. So I want to go back to like what flies and what doesn't, and 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 you know, why they keep, they just seem to be throwing things at the wall and hoping sure, something sticks. But, um, and I want to get, I want to get at, at that in, in a second, but on this, on the, on the collective action issue, I mean, we also know that the Republican leadership and the elites that run the party aren't totally powerless, right? Like they, um, they completely destroyed the career of this, um, this young Congressman Madison Cawthorn because he was so, toxic to them and, and, and offensive and that's because to them. He was suggesting they were using drugs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, he, I mean, he, 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 he crossed the one line, which was like, don't make your fellow Republican look like hypocritical or bad or, or, or anything like that. But his career is over now. Um, uh, and, and separately, we, we know that there's almost like an inverse relationship or it seems like there's almost an inverse relationship between how MAGA ish Republicans are, uh, and their popularity, right? Like the, the modern, the moderate Republican governors of blue states uh, are incredibly popular. Um, and in, then in the midterms last year, the Republicans who had some distance from MAGA did much, much better than the, the Trump clones. In, um, the, in the swing states, they did. In deep red land, there was a surge of voting and it was for the extremists. Um, Interesting. It, it's very important to be quite precise about where we're talking about popularity and politics. I guess and my one, bias is to the to the one to of the, the to reasons that the the extremes of the Republican Party have more clout than the extremes of the Democratic Party, such as they are, is that the extremes of the Republican Party are oper- and the Tea Party itself was more densely and activated uh, in deep red areas where the only election is for is the primary. Now, do we have places like that on the Democratic side? You bet. I live in one. Uh, <laughs> but um, they're really not uh, as many. 
So thinking about how things play across the political geography is very, very important. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, that small faction could take over the House of Representatives and turn the hapless McCarthy into a more hapless figure um, because they're almost all from very safe districts, not all, but where what they have to say is popular. I, I take your point. I, I, I'm, I'm focused on the, you know, the, the swing state, yeah. you know, swing district Republicans, because those are the places Republicans need to win to, to capture power. And I, I, I assume at least that it matters to Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell um, that Republicans are strong in those states and that they're not nominating candidates who are more likely to lose. Um, and then, well, I mean, and that's a lot. And McConnell actually tried to do things about it. Right. He's in, still trying. He has probably the most institutional and financial levers at his disposal of any Republican, um, yeah, official or uh, party honcho. Kevin McCarthy cares about it, but he didn't care about it as much as he cared about having the speaker's title over right. his head. All he cares about is having the speaker's title over his head. So he gave away the levers that he had for affecting primary elections. That was one of the first things that went. He made a deal to avoid having his PAC contribute to, um, I'm not going to say moderate. I'm just going to say non-crazy Republicans in uh, red districts. Right, right. Um, he, yeah, I think the, the, the agreement was, was basically like, I, if the if the right wing outfits sort of on the periphery of the Republican Party want us to to not influence who wins a primary, we won't. We won't. We'll stay out of it. And that even if it means that um, you know, people like Carrie Lake end up, you know, not Carrie Lake, she's not a House candidate, but you know, MAGA candidates win the nomination and then go on to, to lose a general or put put seats in jeopardy. Um so he was willing to sacrifice some some influence, but but McConnell has tons of resources, and they've shown that they will bring him to bear in certain cases. And yet you have you have a situation where, after seeming to work for several years between um, Tea Party attacks on Obama helping out in 2010, and then the uh, the whipping up of frenzies over Benghazi and emails helping uh, Trump win in 2016, that this just whip up a storm about whatever kind of politics is not it. I don't know if it's not working or if it's not working well enough, but in the, in 2018, 2020 and 2022 Republicans didn't really win. Um, and you know, they don't seem to be responding by trying to address the collective action problem in any way so that they can advance the careers of people who stand a better chance of winning. Yeah, and 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 you know this isn't the first time that this has happened in the American party system. When parties lose, sometimes there are more extreme groups that are better organized and more determined double down, uh, and that can go on for quite a few cycles. Uh, I agree with you. That's what's just happened in Michigan. It's happened in Arizona. We'll see what happens in Wisconsin. That's a little more complex. Um, but um, I'm not sure.
sure. I think the jury is out on whether this wins or loses because the overall factor we need to keep in mind is that America has a two-party system. And so uh, as in contrast to a multi-party system, it's harder to, to, to winnow the crazy cows from the herd. Um, and uh, we need to talk about the Democrats too because the Democrats have changed. And I think the Democrats have become more effective. And it may upset you to hear, but I think Joe Biden is a large part of that. He has instincts about what to not make a big fuss about, when to, to which issues to put forward. The social security thing is brilliant, uh, not because it's necessarily going to persuade very many of the old crazies, but because it 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 just divides the other side. He knows how to do that without putting himself front and center, and he's not as easy a target for an ethno-nationalist extremist populism as Barack Obama, uh, because the guy, you know, the, what's their best move against them? Their best move is to say, well, they can't complete a sentence. It turns out he could never complete a sentence, and, you know, I mean, and when you go on and on about that, you make angry a lot of older people who actually vote. Mm-hmm. So um, it's... It's just that he's kind of been right for the time. And I actually think Democrats began to to pull together much broader coalitions. I mean, if you think about our progressive left, our progressive left maybe overplayed their hand the first year of the Biden presidency, but they never went over the edge. They never refused to vote, most of them for the uh, compromises, Um, and uh, they have been amazingly well-behaved in terms of national media presence uh, ever since uh, uh, January 6th. So I I just think um, there's not a, there's really an asymmetry between where these parties are going, and right now the Democrats are doing their best to build broad coalitions. Now, they have to, they have to because they can't win with just a few college towns sprinkled in between the coastal states and the big metropolises. And they are disadvantaged by all of the gerrymandering that's going on that the courts have said it is, you know, anything goes. Um, and they've, they've also, um, they're disadvantaged in the upcoming Senate elections, just as they were in the last two, and yet somehow managed to pull that out. None of that makes me upset to hear. I basically agree about Biden, and I think that his experience and his being an older white guy do make him Teflon or like a harder target for Republicans uh, or scapegoat for Republicans to use to to sort of whip up their their base around. Um, and I we will I, I I do have questions for you about Democrats, um, but a couple more about Republicans um, or about the Republican culture war issues that that were sort of seem to be drowning in all the time. Um, when do you, do you think that there's something to the idea that whether it's a Chinese spy balloon or Joe Biden being in Kiev on president's day and all the Republicans go on TV to, to, to talk about how angry they are about it, even though they didn't even really have enough time to think about what their opinion is and why do you, do you think that that is them sort of trying to like I said before, throw everything everything at the wall, see what sticks, and if something sticks, then they'll run with that, um, so that they can maybe crack the code again that worked in in the Tea Party era. Um, or is it a different phenomenon from the Tea Party um, 
altogether? Well, I'm not sure, but I can say that at this point, uh, Republican politicians in office are so used to a routine that takes cues from the toxic uh, right-wing propaganda media that they probably have quite a few people in their own ranks who believe their own drivel and do not perceive clearly that some lines of argument are really not going to go very far. I mean, this President Biden didn't go to Ohio thing. I, I don't get it. I don't see it. And I don't think the latest polls, to what degree you can believe them, I don't put a lot of weight in them, but they're not showing that that's somehow catching on. Um, so I would back off and say they try a lot of things. I think the ones who are best at it are the Christian right forces. I think they have found a way to move from one uh, issue having to do with family and gender to another. Um, and tap into real anxieties about changes that are going on. And the things that are most effective usually do tap into anxieties that go beyond their own true believers. Um, and uh, certainly the changing role of women in the workforce is, a, is one that a lot of people have still not come to terms with. I think it's not talked about enough. I think one of the big advantages that Trump had against Hillary Clinton, I think he would have lost to Joe Biden in that election, but he had the advantage against Hillary Clinton that A, the New York Times couldn't stop talking about her emails, and that's a big problem. And B, um, you know, she's a professional woman out of out of her place. And that um, a fair number of fairly well-educated uh, men and women who are uneasy about those changes voted for Trump uh, without believing in everything he does or stands for. That first time, many people voted for him hoping he would cut it out. So there are elements, I think, is what you're saying on the right that have, I mean, you know, setting aside what's right or moral about it, they have, they are discerning about which fixations um, will reach into democratic voting populations or swing swing voting populations and help them win elections, like the like the um, religious right in in, in some instances. Um, and then yeah. there are other people who are like who are too online they're too who who are um picking they're fights about they're yeah the they're picking room. fights about everything and you almost need a decoder uh ring or something to understand what they're talking about if you're not watching fox news all the time you you don't get it um but there's even even more than just picking ineffective picking fights ineffectively they also seem to be picking fights that are sometimes like very harmful materially to their own people right yeah, like the, the people true. that think of it as their own like so the the anti-vaccine conspiracy oh, yeah. thing is that the one most... is the hardest to understand why they've wanted to kill off their own people this one i just uh this is really a hard one but so so there's that one there's you know why do they want their supporters inhaling methane gas why do they want them swallowing teflon right like uh, well look i mean they, <laughs> they want they want no uh 
remember Ohio is an interesting mix of Chamber of Commerce type Republicans and uh, Trumpists. Uh, they they just don't want to regulate business. And I, I think a lot of this fuss about, about Buttigieg and um, Biden is, was just a reflexive attempt to change the subject away from the obvious fact that <laughs> they had deregulated these trains in a way that set this disaster up. Uh, you know, will it work? Maybe with a few people who in that area were going to vote for Trumpists anyway. That's the, I haven't looked closely. Where is it? This is like right along the border with uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. This Trump country. That's diesel Trump country. But I was thinking more of, of the gas stove thing when I mentioned inhaling methane gas. Like, I mean, I get that they don't want to regulate any industry, but they're just like, oh, okay, maybe Democrats are going to come try to regulate gas stoves. Let's just pick a fight about that. And the consequence is probably, you know, it's like hard to discern, but it means that probably it'll slow any effort to try to make gas stoves safer. Um and oh, maybe that all depends on how the authorities respond. But I look, I think that um, that one thing I have to understand is that there are certain grooves that have been plowed for a long time. And one of them is hostility to regulatory bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find some way to fit something new into it, and if you can add into it the idea that some Ivy League educated elite is telling you what to do, I mean, th- those are real resentments out there. I mean, when I did my Tea Party interviews, I had to go to great, and, and you know, I did interviews in the field for the first several years until the pandemic after uh, Trump was elected. I went into Trump areas. And I have to do everything possible to um, emphasize the parts of myself that are non-Harvard in, in mm-hmm. introducing myself in those areas. And, and I have to go out of my way not to, to be respectful and not to appear to be telling people what anything. Because they are all primed to believe. And um, you don't have to tell you they're not entirely wrong. I mean, I, I remember a woman who said to me, where you come from, she said. I was in Virginia interviewing tea partiers. I was at a tea party meeting. She said, where you come from? They think we're a bunch of uneducated racist rednecks. Well, now what am I going to say about that? (laughs) What I did say was not all of us think that way. That was quite a few of us do think that way. (laughs) So, you know, that's just a way of saying that politics is not really about issues. It's often about who we are and who they are. And the the who, who the we and they part of this has been stoked deliberately against a backdrop of real changes happening that you know in ways that the right wing has been able to get a payoff from. And they're trying to do it again and again. I think it has some waning effectiveness right now. I really do think so. I'm not sure gas stoves are going anywhere. I don't think criticizing uh, Biden for, for courageously going to Ukraine is going anywhere. I, I really don't. Um, on the other hand, I think DeSantis um, is showing um, a real creativity at um, performative cruelty. And he always picks the most vulnerable and controversial um, people to go after. And the American left has provided some of those people. The American left is into performative politics, too, to some degree. Right. Right. I 
the no disagreement. I just think that the when when the American left puts forward controversial ideas or lightning rod figures, I'm 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 still stuck on the vaccine thing in particular. But this, I don't I don't see progressive activist communities indulging politics that um, encourages like the harm of their their own people or or like you know cheers them on as they spend money to modify their cars to spew soot you know these not these not, only not, these- not, not not the not the parts of the american left that are into building majorities um which is most of them it's mm-hmm. far higher proportion of people on the american left as well as center left that want to build majorities and in that sense are committed to democracy but there are certainly on the campuses there are some pretty um uh out there ideas that can be yeah and you know to see some of these things go from um a seminar to florida politics has been a little bit uh startling and and on the whole that's just the talent of the right-wing propaganda machine to find any crazy statement of which there are always in any society, there are some crazy statements uh, and feature them. But, you know, if I would, if I were to point to this whole DEI thing, I would say, well, there really are, there has been an industry that has grown up, a consultant industry that takes certain ideas from academia and turns them into nonsense, frankly. Um, (laughs) And uh, there are people, I'm bombarded in my workplace by, by things that I'm supposed to take a, a, an hour-long online course about. And I can tell you the research shows, forget about how anybody feels about it, the research shows this stuff doesn't work. But it is an industry. And so that's people like Yunkin who's a very skillful player in this this thing, was able to use a combination of that plus genuine anxieties about how the pandemic school issues had been handled that were real um, to convince enough uh, voters in a purple state that he should be made governor. And of course, he acted non-crazy all the time and he kept Trump out of the state. I mean, I'm just saying there's still a formula for these people who want to walk the line and they're going to keep trying it until it fails every time. Okay, so this is a perfect entryway to to discussing where Democrats fit in in all of this. Um, There was a, a survey that came out Wednesday, I guess, as we're recording this Thursday, um, uh, by Lake Research, the, the Democratic strategy and polling firm. Um, and their finding was that um, basically Republicans would be on firmer political ground fighting Democrats on economic issues than on picking these serial culture war fights. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean that's what the, that's Which what, economic issues are they talking? Oh, you, you know, to to instead of I guess in a weird way, it, it, they're, they're sort of similar ideas. But that if they if they dropped the you know DEI stuff or whatever, you know, flavor of the week culture war fight, and just return to like deficits and spending and the um, you know the catechisms of a decade ago, um, that that they would have a more successful party today, or that they that those messages would be more effective against Democrats and the democratic message 
um, which is, you know, in this survey, one thing I thought was interesting about it is that they, they conducted this test where they, they, they basically picked two Republican messages, one culture war, one economic, and they pitted it against a single Democratic message, which was economic in nature about, you know, corporate greed and, and jobs and, and standard Democratic Party fare. Um, but like they almost like sort of took for granted um, the idea that there is no Democratic Party culture war message or that it's sort of obvious that Democrats can't or shouldn't wage culture war of their own. And I'm wondering why, why I don't you think, think that's that is. Right. I don't, I think, don't think so either. <laughs> you know, you have to, but look at the abortion issue. I mean, one of the things that happened um, is that after the Supreme court took its uh, incredibly aggressive action, um, Democrats started talking about that as a rights issue. They don't go out there and say we're for abortion. They go out there and say, do you really want that state legislature over there deciding about your neighbor's problematic pregnancy? Well, uh, and remember the gay rights movement year, uh, some years back started talking about people in love who wanted to get married. Um, there were some on the far left who thought they went too far with that, and probably they did, but but it works uh, if you can kind of humanize and normalize and make people think of it as an issue of common sense and keeping people out from meddling ought not to be meddling. Turn it into a freedom issue or a common sense issue. Democrats have gotten better at that, and I think they can do it. I mean, we've seen we've seen them do it. Um, in fact, I think Biden does it on racial issues. I think he. You know, he doesn't engage. He never, you, you, you're never going to hear the word critical race theory come from his mouth. What's a bunch of nonsense anyway? What, what is he? <laughs> is, he probably doesn't even know what it is. Uh, does anybody know what it is? But he, he will talk about we're in it together. He gives that hokey ending to every single uh, thing. There's nothing we Americans can't do if we do it together. And he visibly surrounds himself with a rainbow of people. And I, I, I just think that is a winning message. I agree. But I mean, if you look at like, you know, I, I, I think broadly, I agree with you about Biden, but the, the abortion issue is one place where it's like clear he either for because he's been advised this or because he is internally conflicted about it. You know, he is not trying to capitalize on that Supreme Court decision as much as you would suspect he would, given what has happened in special elections ever since that decision came out. I mean, his State of the Union address was, you know, 50 percent bridges and roads and all the stuff that we did together. And um, and then two lines about the Supreme Court decision way down at the bottom before moving on. Um because he doesn't need to do that. He has this is a politician who has a good sense of the timing. And he knew that the right timing was to go after him on Social Security. But I don't know why it would why it would be both. I mean, he did. He had a great section of his speech on the on uh, on you know the families of of black men killed by police, where he didn't even try to offset it with we support the police and law and order and spending on on police departments. It was just this is not a fair thing that happens in our society that these families have to talk to their children in this way about how to behave around police officers so that they don't get shot. Right? Like that's not probably the most advantageous culture war attack. Uh, but he did it because I, you know, it was right. And I thought well, it was a very I actually moving thought part. he well, I mean, he was taking advantage of the fact that the latest incident was so obviously uh 
was really bad. Yeah, but the, well, really but, bad on that score exactly. And uh, he also, uh, I don't know. I, I think that he doesn't feel. First of all, he doesn't treat, and he, and that State of the Union address was like this. He doesn't treat politics as a list of policy goals. Um, he's picking things he thinks send certain kinds of messages and he doesn't need to worry about pro-choice activists being activated. He knows that and he knows what happened uh, in the last election. (laughs) He will emphasize it again going into the presidential election where uh, it's an advantageous message to convey that you don't want the that you don't want a Republican president in there with a Republican Congress that will instantly take away our rights to make our own decisions. That's how he's going to frame it. That's how he's going to talk about it. That's a winning way to talk about it. I agree with that. I just see himself as the advocate mobilizer in chief. And I think that's so important. I think that the way he does talk about it when he talks about it is strategically wise, but I'm, I'm struck by the, degree of emphasis he gives it relative to other issues, like very little, (laughs) Um, when it's clear that it speaks to a huge majority or a a large majority of the country that wants Roe v. Wade or or an equivalent statutory regime like that back, um, that he will let kind of let it go fallow between now and the presidential election and just talk about these Let's kitchen table remember, issues. This is a guy who's thinking about the Electoral College all the time. And if he's got an instinct personally that intersects with his political analysis, his electoral analysis, it's that he has to somewhat improve the margins by which Democrats lose the blue collar vote in mm-hmm. places like his state of Pennsylvania, which, by the way, is exactly what he did mm-hmm. in 2020. I mean, I studied Pennsylvania very closely and, you know, he still lost those non-collar, non-Pittsburgh. He eked out a bear win in Erie County. He just did enough better than Hillary Clinton did in 2016 to flip the tens of thousands another direction. So he's been on a mission from day one to bring kind of blue collar America back into at least acquiescence. And the thing I have to say to you is he knows because of the way he was raised and what he personally believes that abortion is not a winning issue with blue collar Catholics. Okay, well, then we can stipulate that maybe abortion is sort of sui generis in the in the in the universe of sort of liberal or democratic party culture like war material and that and that it might not be ideal for him to be making that like a, a number one or number two issue when he's giving like a state of the union address or something like that um i think that in general when democrats hear about this like culture war in general that maybe they should be taking a a, a harder line on culture war issues that advantage them, um, their minds immediately turn to a bunch of factional sort of unpopular stuff, right? Defund the police. Like they're all haunted by that. Um, uh, and I don't mean to suggest that I think that all culture war in the U S is, is, is right-wing culture war. Like, I think if you look at the people who make cultural products like music and TV and movies, they're promoting values that are generally pluralistic and they're sometimes avant-garde and you can understand why traditionalists in parts of the country that Biden wants to 
do better in, uh, see that as a kind of left-wing culture war aimed at them. Um, but I think that when you're talking about Democrats, not the not Hollywood or whatever, um, like the leadership isn't really leaning into that stuff, whether it's abortion or trans rights or anything else. And and I guess that's fine if it's a strategically wise choice to make, but they could be waging culture war about values that are sort of antithetical to the modern Republican Party, right? Like Republicans have have seeded if Democrats want to take it, issues like patriotism and civic nationalism and ethics, right? And honesty, just being nice. <laughs> um, and Biden embodies niceness, I think. So I, I guess I think the Democrats are leaning into all those issues. Are they? Yeah, I, ju- I I feel like they're leaning into Social Security, <laughs> and not and not. I, mean, I think the patriotism talk is all over the place. In many ways, Biden is practically reviving the Cold War, and uh, you know, uh, I think the be decent to people thing is practically his brand. And it, yes, to, that to a, that to, to a surprising degree, the entire party has gone along with this. You you have largely civil talk, even when they're talking tough. Uh, uh, and I think there's an understanding that modeling being tough without being um, cruel is uh, good politics, which I believe that it is. Remember, the Democratic Party increasingly garners support from college-educated people who probably don't want this kind of mud-throwing style for the most part. Uh, women in particular. Uh, Democrats have been pretty tough on the gun issues, and I think top to bottom, and those are not necessarily popular immediately. Mm-hmm. I think they have, you know, this is this is really, um, part of it has got to do with the fact that there are many different communication modes that Democrats depend on. But to me, it seems like they've gotten better at actually getting out there and speaking English. And talking about values rather than talking about the latest policy twist. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it's better. I, 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 I feel it getting a little bit better too. Um, particularly after, um, uh, twenty 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 two. Um, the you know, and Joe Biden does you know he, they, he and his aides are always talking about how he. Uh, channels empathy and that this is a great political asset to him. And I, and I, and I basically agree with them. I, I see the Democrats bypassing confrontation with the right on things like ethics and, um, and, and trying to uh, sort of sidestep questions about the, the goodness or badness of Republican conduct, Trump's conduct in favor of just talking about prescription drug prices or, or social security. And I, I remember I was struck by this and this will give you a chance to, um, to tell me why I'm wrong about how Democrats reacted to the rise of the resistance. Um, is that you had this huge public backlash to Trump. And I mean, it's pretty obvious to me that it was about the Omni crisis that Trump represented. It was, yes, like he tried to go after people's health care, but he was also this horribly malign figure who, uh, said and did sexist things, bragged about sexual assault, um, said he was going to ban Muslims and then did, and people, people rose up by the millions to, to protest it. And I, I didn't like, you know, I didn't see Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer trying to harness that so much and go after the things that were animating those protesters or, or make a beeline for, um, 
you know, a bunch of ethics investigations in, into Trump. Like when they won the House in, in 2018 and they came into power, the first thing they did was they went to the Trump White House and said, hey, we want to work on a $2 trillion infrastructure bill with you. Now, I mean, the, the, the infrastructure bill didn't go anywhere, which I and think is- And they knew it wouldn't. Well, but why, I mean- That, I mean, was, what, was, that, was, I, that was performative. I guess so. I mean, but I yeah. like when Republicans come to power after after uh, two years of the of, of the Biden presidency and they take over the House, it's not like let's see what we can do together. It's accountability is coming, and your son's laptop is going to be all over. You know, and and I mean, like these are very divergent political styles, and I don't think Republicans are always picking the right one. But I think like understanding what makes your opponents mad about their political adversaries. And and going to bat for them and like going after those things, um, is going to be helpful at at, at some now, points. But look, the, the Democratic Congress under Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer produced the most output uh, of any Congress in a long time, and, and and that entire thing at the beginning of pretending to want to cooperate was just that was just to show that they wouldn't. I mean, one of the one of the big tactics that the Democrats are doing quite well now. And I, I give, I give Biden credit for this. He's the one who came up with this MAGA Republican thing. It's very good because we don't really have two parties right now. We have three and, but finding a way to make that visible, you have to have a label. And is he came up with that. But I think that strategy of trying to highlight the crazies and say to people who could go either way, uh, you know, really you might be a Republican, but not now. I mean, that, that, that has been a winning strategy. I don't. I just don't see that as a losing strategy. Now, um, I was going to say something else. The resistance that I worked on, and you know, this is true of the Tea Party too. I'm an organizational, a political scientist. I'm more of a political scientist than a sociologist, but I'm both, and I don't really care. I study organizations, and so for me, street demonstrations are not the epitome of power. The question is, do they translate into ongoing organizational networks that can influence the political parties over time, in between as well as during elections? And in the case of both the Tea Party and the resistance, uh, my research group has put together, I think we've the only ones who've ever done who've done this. We know the names of the locally formed groups and their locations in the country at the height of the Tea Party for the Tea Party and at the height of the resistance for the grassroots resistance. The grassroots resistance actually organized more local groups than the Tea Party uh, a year or so in. And these were not the people you saw on TV. I I don't want to discount the airport demonstrations, the the immediate reactions to Trump and some of the major, the women's march and everything. But what really turned that into political power was two years of organizing in every community in America, particularly densely in the outer ring, in the the suburbs, but everywhere. And... um, to some degree that was blunted by the pandemic because the actors in this part of the drama, which are not considered glamorous in the media, are older women, older white women, and to some degree older black church women in the Southern states. Um, These are not glamorous actors. They are not far left on a lot of issues. And, but they did the work that produced the victories, not just for Congress in 2018, 
but in uh, state and, at, and local elections in a bunch of places, and that whose after effects are being magnified even now, now that the pandemic is over and people have gone back to some of it. So I, I actually think that the kind of liniments of a broad-based uh, liberalism were put back in place during that period, and it paid off at least at the presidential election in 2020. And I think played a role in in the Democrats minimizing their losses in 2022. Um, and and they wouldn't even have lost the House if it weren't for the, for the damn Democrats in New York. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, where were the resistance moms there? What were they doing? <laughs> well, uh, it's a bunch of you know. One of the things that happens when you have a single party situation, yeah. I can tell you, is that people stand down. Yeah. If what you're saying is that the Democratic Party didn't really sort of get spooked by the, maybe they got spooked by the movement in the streets, but they absorbed the sort of door-to-door grassroots movement of older. They cooperated with it. In a lot of places where we did empirical work, we found that many of these grassroots resistance groups kind of moved in and took some positions in the Democratic Party while remaining some ability to push from the outside. That kind of interplay is really important in giving up movement power. Uh, I do think Black Lives Matter is a different matter. And I think the, the Floyd the Floyd demonstrations did spook the Democrats to some degree because, well, because of those people on that hill in Minneapolis who put up those signs that said defund the police, which that's an example of really, really bad politics. But it didn't come from Democratic elected politicians. Mm-hmm. It came right. from it didn't even come from people who lived in the places whose police would be defunded. Um, the research shows that. Um, working class people of all colors want the police to be there. They just want them to be fair. Right. And the, I, I do think that the, the post Floyd period colored how democratic party actors think about how to indulge in sort of values driven, passion driven culture politics, because they think it's often a live wire or a third rail and they don't, they don't want to touch it. And They'll get burned by it if they do. Um, but I think what you're saying is that the resistance movement outside of the street protest created a sort of durable movement that's that's less visible, less glamorous, but in the post-pandemic period is still thriving and able to um, sort of influence the the Democratic Party to to sort of indulge those sort of cultural issues that do capture the center, the things we were talking about, like patriotism and ethics um, and just being being a decent person. They discussed, well, uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us. Okay, glad to do it. Nice to talk to you. Positively Dreadful is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Olivia Martinez. And our associate producer is Emma Illich-Frank. Evan Sutton mixes and edits the show each week. Our theme music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.